The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to postseason baseball. The Chicago White Sox begin their march to the World Series. Here to recap the big moments and analyzing the critical decisions is your favorite source of Chicago White Sox talk. This is the Sox Machine postseason show with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live as it just passed midnight on Monday, October 11th, as the Chicago White Sox win Game 3 of the American League Division Series against the Houston Astros to keep their season alive. And I apologize for how weak my voice sounds. I am Josh those, Nelson alongside those husky tones. <laughs> the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It is Jim Margulis. I just got back from Guaranteed Rate Field and... You know, this is going to be the most loosey-goosey podcast we've ever done in our eight seasons of the Sox Machine podcast, Jim, uh, because uh, I don't have much planned uh, being at the game. And, you know, I was coming up with storylines early when the White Sox took the lead. And then when they fell behind five to one, uh, you know, I, I was feeling doom uh, sitting in the stands. Mm-hmm. But I think we got to talk about the guy who turned this season around after having a disastrous journey in right field in game two, Lurie Garcia, maybe one of the more improbable home runs in White Sox postseason history, right behind Scott Vicendic's walk off in game two of the World Series. That's the most improbable. But Lurie Garcia, in a way, in a big way, saves the White Sox season. I thought first you're going to say the guy with the cane turned the season around. I don't know if you, did you see him yet? Have you been able to <laughs> so we know got what that's this, all about? So we get the first comment in our YouTube channel, cane man. <laughs> yes. Have you been able to see it yet? Or I know how I, like you were checking I, your phone. Be- I, the internet was really spotty at the stadium because there's over 40,000 people there. Uh, so I don't know what the cane man is. There about. was a guy who was twirling his cane in a menacing way, like pointing it kind of like a, half wand half rifle <laughs> in like the front row i think behind if i had the camera angle right behind the uh dugout on the first base side and camera found him right before some uh, big moments and it was terrific so yeah it was uh that was cool the whole broadcast was cool we could talk about that a little bit too I, to save you some uh 
some some of your vocal cords but yeah that'd be great uh, <laughs> garcia's homer uh was well i mean first it was remarkable one because he homered in a bet where he faced two different pitchers named garcia and that That's was gotta something. be a first right yeah <laughs> so he had larry garcia garcia facing luis garcia then uh, moving on to yimmy garcia and you know, first of all, that was a really cool inning because all the White Sox lefties did damage. We talked about that uh, pregame, talking about how you know as good as Luis Garcia had been his rookie year, lefties had gotten him. And so what happened in that inning? You know, Yasmani Grandal hit a two-run homer. Uh, Yohan Makata hit a line drive single. Gavin Sheets line drive single. And so everything was lined up for Garcia to do something. Um, you know, if he's going to do anything. Uh, that would be the, a great time, left side of the plate against a guy who could not get lefties out. And I thought it was a little bit of desperation on Dusty Baker's part to switch pitchers during the at-bat. Because usually you don't do that when things are, you know, unless things are really dire or there's an injury. And he, I don't think you do that for a hitter like Larry Garcia. He's not the guy who scares you. So to bring in a second Garcia to face Garcia was a little bit confusing or a little bit like too much flop sweat to me, <laughs> even if that might be uh, how it looked afterwards. That might be revisionist history, but during the event, I thought, huh, like that seems a little bit rash or a little bit like instilling, you know, if not panic, uh, that's not confidence you're instilling in your players. And sure enough, Garcia throws, uh, <laughs> the third Garcia, Yemi, throws uh, three fastballs, the, the third of which was piped, and Garcia sent it to hell, basically, <laughs> off the batter's eye. And yeah, turned the game around. So it was great to see the White Sox turn a weakness into, you know, capitalizing on a weakness with their strength, and then capitalizing further by taking what seemed like a panic-stricken decision and making and justifying that panic one way or another. Yeah, in the stands when Dusty Baker made that move, I attended the game with my future father-in-law Roy. It was his birthday, so happy birthday to Roy! His <laughs> Very first, happy his, birthday. His, his first postseason game ever as a White Sox fan. He's been a Sox fan since 1959. Uh, so my what parents' anniversary as well. So every everybody's celebrating. Yeah, exactly. Um, I looked at Roy and said, "This is a college baseball move. I see this happen all the time at college baseball when I'm watching these games for our draft coverage. And every time it happens, Jim, it always blows up in the face uh, of the coach because mm -hmm. you're giving no margin of error for the reliever that's coming in. You're you're, you're down two zero." So you throw two bad pitches because you just got on the mound and you walk the guy mm -hmm. and that complicates matters and you're not in a rhythm. So for that, that's a tough spot for Yemi Garcia to come in because uh, there's already a lot of traffic on the bases. And but the most surprising thing is that wasn't a cheapy. Lurie Garcia destroyed that pitch. That was like a 430-some foot home run. And I know there's like some promotion going on for every home run hit over 425 feet. Some mm -hmm. cryptocurrency companies donating money or whatnot. Lurie Garcia, out of all the White Sox hitters, is the guy who hit a 425-plus foot home run uh, in that moment. And I, I don't know if I could put into words what the crowd reaction was when that ball hit the batter's eye, it was just, 
an explosion of excitement and it was deafening. I don't know how it sounded on TV, but being there, it was just deafening and it went, it, it just turned around. I mean, Yasmani Grandal's home run was huge. Finally, we get to see a home run, but the White Sox are still down 5-3. When Garcia's home run cleared center field, it just sparked hope with and for all the fans that were there that they could do this. We can now win game three because when the Astros were up 5-1, it, I kind of felt like a Minnesota Twins fan of, well, this is what it's like to win a division easily and get swept in the postseason. And thanks to Larry Garcia, that didn't happen. Uh, on TV, um, you know, given the way the center fielder tracked it, it sounded loud, it sounded like good contact. Mm -hmm. um, but the center fielder tracked it pretty much all the way to the wall. So you think it's going to be close. And then the way it finished was not close. I don't know if, you know, from your angle and from the stadium that did you know it was a no doubter or it wasn't a no doubter because, you know, you'd know immediately if there, there was no doubt. Uh, the way the angle and the exit velocity my first reaction was no way. Like he got all of that. Like I, I was mm -hmm. just surprised that he, Lurie Garcia crushed that. Like it's a type of angle and exit velocity that I've seen from like Yasmani Grandal when he really gets into one. Yeah. Or Jose Abreu. Um, I, I knew it was gone, but mm -hmm. I just couldn't believe the source of who yeah. hit it. Yeah, with like Grandal or Mancato, when they let go of the bat, you generally know they got exactly. it all. But with Garcia, he's got like the two-handed uh, follow-through, kind of whips around the box, looks ready to run. So you can't trust it. And by the time the camera cuts away from him, you don't know what he's doing uh, or how he's running up the first baseline, you know, whether he's skipping or not. Uh, so you only have really the center fielder to trust. And he played it pretty straight until he ran out of room with like 40 feet of flight to go uh yeah that was um that was incredible I, I think the thing to me was like uh the the grand all homer you know the way i often describe the white Sox offense when it's struggling to get the ball in the air and when it's kind of going base to base is constipated uh just a lot of, a lot of grunting and time for minimal results and so i so i guess if you're carrying that all the way through for uh yeah to make it for maximum disgust i think you know Grandal's homer would be the laxative <laughs> and then uh larry's everything that happened afterwards just the you know, relief and just oh okay, this is uh a lead and and a comeback a counter punch that's what you really want to see and then you know i'm not sure what the mood was like in the park but to me when the White Sox fell behind five to one, three to one, and then five to one, it seemed like the air was let out of the park. Yeah. But then when Garcia, you know, hit the homer, gave him the lead, and then Kopech gave up the lead, that didn't see. I, I think the Kopech strikeout of Alvarez provided enough electricity afterwards. Like that did not. It was down, but still there. And Kopech's reaction, and even though he gave up the lead again. Just getting that, you know, getting out with the the game still tied and having the, uh, you know, especially going through Al Alvarez to keep the game tied, seemed like it sustained the life enough for hope to be, you know, well, you know, you know it wasn't on life support. <laughs> hope, hope was still quite alive. And then the fourth inning, uh, I had no idea what the commotion was about with Yasmani Grandal because I'm sitting in section 155 
And of course, Astros fans are in my timeline. Be like, you totally know what happened. No, I don't because mm -hmm. I'm sitting right next to the left field foul pole. So from my angle, it just like looked like Guriel made a bad throw to home and it missed Maldonado and it goes to the backstop. I just thought it was a bad throw. And then I have to go to Twitter to see what the umpires are talking about. <laughs> and then I see on just how far inside the baseline Yasmani Grandal is. So help me understand, Jim, what the rule is for a hitter as they leave the batter's box, establishing the baseline to first base. Was Grand should have Grandal been called out there? Yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm yeah I'm looking at the uh, yeah I'm, I'm just searching for tweets because I did not uh, find post game comment on that yet uh, while I was writing the recap because I finished the recap just about five minutes before we went on air but just basically <laughs> it seemed yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the ruling seemed to be that Grandal had the right to establish a baseline towards first base and the way he broke out of the box um, you know, theoretically. <laughs> He was early enough, and, and the funny thing, I wrote, I mentioned this in the recap, that this was probably the second time this season where Grandal benefited from being as slow as he is, because I think, you know, we saw it in Cle against Cleveland in April when he had the throw hit his helmet on the way to second base oh, because yes. the three yes. six three double play that normally would have been turned, like he would have been most runners would have been sliding by the time the throw got to him, but because he was still like thirty feet away from uh, second base, like he was still on his feet running, the ball hits his helmet, bounces in the left field, uh, the and uh, in chaos ensues. Um, with, with Grandal, I think he was still probably far enough away from first base to where he could have still been taking a straight path from where he was to the base. I, I, when we normally see that kind of interference call, it's when the throw is being you know, thrown from home plate to the catcher and the catcher is usually, um, you know, within the field of play in front of the home plate and the base runner takes like a last ditch step towards like his, his maybe uh, penultimate step towards first base is, you know, on the grass or in the field before hitting first base to cut the angle. And they say, well, he wasn't in the field of play, but I guess Grandal was so slow or, or far enough away from first that they were still trying to figure everything out. <laughs> I guess the idea of a baseline was still mushy or something. It did seem, you know, suspect, or at least, you know, it seemed like the kind of gamesmanship or advantage that runners normally take. So it wasn't anything like, uh, I guess, really sketchy by Grandal, but I think if you if they called him out, if they said like he would interfere with the play, you'd probably have to say, yeah, he was. <laughs> but, <laughs> but since he since the play was upheld, I guess you can say like, well, I guess he normally don't say that much. I don't know if that's like inspires like, you know, maybe they should, you know, the next runner should take a uh a, a you know, cue from that and maybe like take two steps forward towards the mound before breaking in and then he bouncer towards the right side. Cause yeah, it did seem like a really generous interpretation of the baseline, but maybe Grandal just happens to be somebody who's so he takes so much time <laughs> to get to where he's supposed to be in the normal rhythm of a play that he just distorts things and creates rulings that normally wouldn't happen. Well, we also learned in Boston, you could just kick the ball over the fence if you need a ground rule double to prevent a run from scoring. Yeah, that's 
It's been a, it's been a night for rules in yeah. Major League Baseball. Nobody knows what we're doing here. Uh, so, so I had to figure that out. But it, the BABIP regression that we saw in Game 2, making the comment every ground ball hit up the middle of the infield in Game 2 went the Astros' way. And when the White Sox did it, Jose Altuve's fielding in. In the fourth inning, it changed. Mm-hmm. Any ball in play the White Sox uh, – put in play it seemed like it was going for some type of hit like a swinging bunt thanks to the sod father if as long as it stays fair at the beginning of a ground ball it will remain fair and Aloy Jimenez beating it out for an RBI single and the White Sox lacing singles through the infield and getting those runs and that yeah I mean the four the first four innings of this game took over two hours uh and it took a lot out of as a fan, like just sitting there, it's like, there's so much going on and we're not halfway through this game. Mm -hmm. But while Lurie Garcia is a big storyline, I think just as big is the jobs that Ryan Tapera and Aaron Bummer did tonight. And a cap tip to Tony La Russa. We, we were very critical of Tony La Russa and rightfully so he had a bad game, game two managing the White Sox. But I felt after Cease and Kopech and just getting a feel of how well Tapera and Bummer were throwing, that having, I think Tony La Russa having Tapera go two mm-hmm. and Bummer get five outs, understanding how well they were throwing and challenging the Astros hitters, that was the right move by Tony La Russa. So cap tip to Tony, uh, really coming through as far as the postseason experience that he was bringing to the White Sox because you definitely see that in tonight's game. Um, But from the player performance side, that was such a blessing to see Ryan Tapera and Aaron Bummer uh, retire 11 straight hitters uh, when it just seemed like the White Sox after the first inning of these, these three playoff games could not shut down Houston Mm -hmm. and they were able to do it. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, (laughs) <laughs> during the uh, during the game, I, I saw fans and then I jumped in on this saying, like, what if you rework the trade mentally so that the trade was Ryan Tapera and Craig Kimbrell for Nick Madrigal, uh, Cody Hoyer, and Bailey Horn? Does that make it better? <laughs> Does that kind of smooth everything over with the way Tapera pitched? Because, yeah, he was uh, – he calmed everything down. I, I think, you know, I, I have a rough post in mind or at least a, a template in mind for tomorrow morning whenever I get to it. It's just like a, a power rankings for all the figures in game four. And I think he might be at the top of it just because – he restored order and then he did it again. That was, I think, the it was it was important to get that first inning, but then the second inning, uh, I think, was just the um, <laughs> it seemed really two smooth innings. Uh, this entire uh, you know this entire series so far, the first two games in Houston, like you know Dylan Cease had a you know and, and extended the game three, like Dylan Cease had a great first inning, fell apart. Uh, you know Lucas Giolito had a great first inning, fell apart, or was just at least bumpy afterwards. Like just they had a really hard time stitching together two innings. So the fact that he did it twice was incredible. And then Bummer being the good Bummer, and I don't know if you're seeing this on Twitter, uh, Ryan Tapera's comments after the game. Uh, mm-hmm. He said, uh, you know, Chandler Rome, I believe he's the Chronicle reporter, Houston Chronicle reporter, yes, said, uh, uh, 
White Sox reliever Ryan Tapera on the Astros, quote, they've had a reputation of doing some sketchy stuff over there. We can say it's a little bit of a difference. I think you saw the swings and misses tonight compared to the first two games at Minute Maid. So he's he's stirring the pot a little bit. <laughs> is he suggesting something weird is going on in Houston again? Yes, and, uh, you know, it's... Um, I'm kind of telling they they got 23, uh, 22 swinging strikes tonight. I'm telling what they did in the first two games here. Uh, let's see, 9, 10, 11, 12, sing, uh, let's see, 15 swinging strikes in game two. So it's, you know, 22 to 15. Let's see uh, game one here. Sorry while everybody listens to me, just do arithmetic in my uh, head. Well, while you're doing that, 17 you know, swinging I'm... strikes. So not a huge difference in swinging strikes, but high leverage swinging strikes and the continuity from pitcher to pitcher to pitcher, you know, who knows, but a little bit of fear well, at the very least. Well, so for those that are missing the pregame shows that we're having on Twitter, uh, which we'll have another one on Monday afternoon, uh, around 1130 uh, a.m. Central Time so we can do the pregame and set the table for game four and allow everyone to get to the stadium in time uh, into their seats for game four as first pitch is going to be 2.30 p.m. Central Time uh, for the White Sox and Astros on Monday for game four. <laughs> Weather permitting, that's going to be a story tomorrow. Hopefully we'll get an updated forecast in the morning and we'll report that on SoxMachine.com on how the weather's going to look in Bridgeport tomorrow. Uh, but shout out to our friend Beeflow from the 108 because it was you, me, and Beeflow pre-game, I mean, uh, previewing the game three. And he said that the White Sox need to figure out a way to strike out the Astros 12 plus times in order to win tonight. And the Chicago White Sox pitchers struck out 16 Houston Astros. And after Michael Kopech and Dylan Cease, the young guns, Ryan Tapera, Aaron Bummer, Craig Kimbrell, and Liam Hendricks did not allow a hit. Mm -hmm. They did not allow a walk. And they struck out nine. That is incredible. And if there is any way they can bottle that up for game four, they're going to force a game five situation. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think um, we, we got a comment from Alex Rude saying, there are Sox fans that th said they heard whistles during game one and two but before off-speed pitches. So it's going to be a subplot. It's going to be fun, especially. Uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, being a, another four gamer, like that could be some, uh, uh, you know, some, some talk around the entire league. But when you think about it, just the entire Astros cheating scandal started with a meaningless game against the White Sox mm -hmm. and Danny Farquhar um, <laughs> in a game that they had no reason to bother. So if they, you know, that's, uh, you know, the, the thing about benefit of the doubt is when you, when you do cheat so brazenly in a game where you have no reason to what happens in, you know, games where you think you have reason to like, you just, you know, whether it's true or not, like you don't deserve any reason to think it's above board. <laughs> like, you know, fans can say what they want. Players can say what they want and they just have to take it just because, that's what they did. And it was so, it was so uh, just, bra you know, just brazen's a word that comes to mind. Just so bald faced that. Yeah. It's, it's um yeah, it's ridiculous, but yeah, it's, I think everything we said in the pregame show though, I, I think we all come away looking pretty smart. Yeah. You know, we said it was either going to be, <laughs> uh, you know, cease, you know, 
pitching the game of his life or a slugfest in order for the White Sox to win because it was just going to be um, the, the, the warm nights, wind blowing out. And we saw, you know, Kyle Tucker and Yasmani Grandal hitting pretty cheap homers left field, kind of wall scrapers. Uh, didn't look like sure things off the bat, but just drifted, drifted, drifted over the wall. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Larry didn't need the wind for his, but still just saw that kind of weird stuff happening to where needed strikeout. And I guess we all looked smart because it was a slugfest, but they got the strikeouts. <laughs> so yep. uh, it, it fulfilled both ends of the games we envisioned happening. Just the strikeouts came really backloaded and thank goodness they did. And, and I think if I were to like, you know, pick a nit with the, you know, I guess with, with LaRusse's bullpen management, you know, once I didn't think Kimbrell's necessary, but he did pinch uh, Kimbrell with the best possible situation where he only needed one batter. <laughs> Nobody on base. Uh, yeah. I was concerned he would start the eighth and they need to face three batters. What if two reach? And then what if Hendricks comes in and he's Homer prone and it's a three run game. And all of a sudden you're, 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 you're putting Hendricks's lone flaw in the position where it can actually ruin the game. So that's, you know, I, I was afraid of Kimbrough for that. So to see him come in, yeah, I didn't want to see him at all, but to see him come in with only requiring one out and still having three runs, like, fine. Uh, same thing with, like, Hendricks pitching the ninth. I thought they could have spared him the entire ninth. That was Jose Ruiz territory at that point, but mm-hmm. he only threw 10 pitches, you know, I guess – in the scheme of things, it's not terribly different from warming up and not pitching at all. So that's forgivable too. So the nice thing is with the Roos's management, we can only like nitpick small things. You know, I guess that's redundant because nitpicks are necessarily small, but no major criticism. Like I think he, he was his hook on cease was natural, you know, understandable, like, you know, kind of balancing the tension between really wanting to get something from him and then bailing just when you realize like this could get out of hand. And in Kopech did well enough, although Kopech, I think, you know, giving up the homer and such, like he showed that oh, maybe he would have been a lock for calming things down in game two. So there's that. But uh, uh, after that, you know, after Kopech uh, got in and out, um, you know, the, the decision to pinch hit uh, Andrew Vaughn for Gavin Sheets was a natural decision against the lefty. But still, you know, just he did it. It worked great. Um, starting, you know, Garcia and Wright worked out you know, i guess the idea of every left-handed bat against uh, uh luis garcia panned out even though he hit that homer against yimi garcia so yeah that worked so yeah by and large uh you know major successes for him and the the only uh, quibbles are just that quibbles and you know he could have his reasons for doing it and yeah it's if you know like say game two was yeah i'm not even i'd have to think it through to give a letter grade but say like drf for game two this was you know b or a minus yeah, for it. I would say, you know, wasn't perfect, but pretty ass, maybe A minus, especially given the stakes. <laughs> let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's throw an A on it. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. You want to talk about the broadcast before we talk about game four? Sure. Yeah. I think, um, well, especially since the low bar, the MLB network broadcast set for being, um, irrelevant and, uh, racist, <laughs> just, if not, you know, if not out now, right. Like very problematic and just, <laughs> uh, and at the very least, you know, and to the point where, uh, in the first inning, <laughs> like when, before they finished the first inning, they had, they made a comment that it apologized for later in the game, just like, yeah, um, you know, set a very low bar for Amin and Pierzynski, but the combination of Amin and AJ Pierzynski and Adam Wainwright was cool. Uh, one because he Wainwright. had Adam Wainwright, like Adam Wainwright, like not a hard hitting analyst. He tended to be uh, very the. Uh, he was, his tendency was to praise the talent. I, I don't think he wants to insult anybody, but his default setting was to more or less remark on the great talent that's there rather than kind of second guess strategy. And I think that was a nice compliment to Pierzynski, who does like criticizing things and making you know jabs if he feels like one's warranted. So that balanced out kind of the 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 acid on one end and just kind of maybe too much sugar on the other. But when the game got wild, when he had the you know crooked numbers going back and forth and he had the random batting average on balls and play luck, um, you know, and, and, and the, then you had the ball glancing off Grandall's shoulder. You had just all the wild stuff. They were enjoying it. You had three guys in the booth uh, who were just all sounded like they were just enjoying it as much as the fans were. And when you, you know, I guess when you think of, you know, all the complaining and griping about the modern game that we saw on the MLB network or the, the, the John Smoltz uh, type, uh, you know, the, the, you know, just the reflexive bitterness from John Smoltz or like A-Rod saying nonsensical things, uh, just trying to turn everything into a lesson and, and can't keep together. Like any, you know, just nothing holds water that he says, like you just had three guys reacting simply, uh, and smartly, but you know, just all the, you could feel the emotion and just nobody really comprehending uh, what's supposed to happen here. And especially Wainwright, since he's only done a couple games in a booth before that he was just, you know, his, his attitude was like, 
is this how every game is from this perspective? <laughs> and so you have, he was a good conduit for the fans being, you know, just if you threw a headset on anybody watching the game, they would have been reacting the same way. And while you might say that's kind of, you know, on certain games that might reflect like a amateurish, uh, fanboyish, meatballish, whatever you want to call it, like whatever the shortcomings are, putting a fan in the booth. Like this was like uh, just re- reflecting like, uh, disbelief and awe and just, you know, gobsmackedness, whatever you want to call it. They did a great job of articulating that. And what was funny was Pierzynski was criticizing Grandal for uh, being in the baseline, or he was saying like, you know, that he was saying that was kind of a heel move and not without a self-awareness what? that Pierzynski would have done the same thing. Like, you know, Wainwright was the one to say that. I mean, was the one to say that. And people were kind of complaining that, you know, Pierzynski was being a hypocrite. But then you think, like, within Pierzynski's personality is the capacity to pretend that nobody should do that. And, of course, that is not sporting to run within the baseline. Because you think of, you know, every heel, that's what they do. <laughs> they <laughs> pretend like they're playing within the rules. And then when the 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 um, ref's not looking, that's when they, they bring out the foreign object. <laughs> <laughs> or the the blinding salts or whatever <laughs> and uh, turn the game to a farce but of course he would say that that's not something to be done because if people if everybody agrees that's something that isn't to be done then the benefit of the doubt is there for somebody like him to do it <laughs> so there you go oh i was wondering about that how aj Przinski <laughs> felt about yeah, it didn't make sense and then it did that's how that's how i saw it uh good old aj good old aj all right let's talk about game four as carlos Rodon will be making the start for the white Sox again we're going to be having a twitter space pregame show at 11 30 a.m central time so i'll be a little bit more prepared uh for that show than i am now coming back from guarantee ray field after game three we did get this question from our youtube comments from jeremy and jeremy posed a question to us uh jim i can't participate in twitter spaces while i'm at work but my question for game four is who is backing up carlos Rodon? and then he wrote gulp is it ronaldo lopez I'm thinking if it's Lopez, it might be Lopez for the bottom of the order or something like that. Like if it's like Martin Maldonado or somebody, you know, or, or one of the center fielders, maybe him. But I think, say like Rodon, you know, knock on wood, he goes three. I think the rest of the game you're seeing the ones they trust. You know, like I would say it's crochet and up on the leverage ladder. I think it's crochet against lefties and then, you know, whether it's Tapera for one or two, Bummer for one or two, you might see Hendricks for two or three. Like, I think it's just going to be uh, survive in advance. So I, I don't think Lopez is there unless it, like, happens to break perfectly to where it's the bottom of the order, you know, Martin Maldonado or whoever, and just like, okay, one bat, you know, two outs or one, you know, to where he only has to face one batter or gets two shots to get one out. Uh, maybe that's the way they go. And then it's, uh, you know, high leverage guys from there. But I think it's crocheting up. Um, that's how I would see it. And hopefully, you know, Rodon says he's feeling good. We'll see. <laughs> I mentioned on the pregame uh, Twitter space that I was wondering if Rodon said he turned a corner just in case he never had to pitch this series <laughs> and was saying like, oh, he's perfectly healthy going into free agency. He just never got the chance. <laughs> so, uh, you know, maybe uh, there's maybe a gulp here in line, like 
like <laughs> you, know, for, uh, you know whether Rodon can actually uh, back it up but uh, I, I imagine he's fine there's going to be some adrenaline that's not there you just hope that between Rodon's his strike throwing his uh, grasp of the strike zone being more consistent than Cease's all year because Cease you know we, we've talked about with him like he has the one inning where he can't get right and he just needs the round to be over like it's kind of like a, a boxing match where he's just up against the ropes and just trying to you know, cover his face basically <laughs> just hope that he can stay up until the the bell rings and he can uh go to the corner and and and, and get the treatment he needs uh from the, the the staff uh but this it never came and the leverage is too great or the 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 stakes are too great um he couldn't afford to ruin the leverage for anybody else so he had to come out but i think rodan he doesn't even when he's less than his best he doesn't have those innings where the control crumbles we just haven't seen the inning you know we haven't seen really any game where a team forces him out except the Tigers in that one game where he is throwing in the high 80s. So I hope he, I guess what I'm hoping from Rodon is that he can throw low 90s uh, at the very least, maintain his velocity, maintain that extra fastball hop that he has even when he's low 90s and he's able to get through three, get through, you know, hopefully one time through, maybe second time through if the handedness breaks right, you know, three or four, if he can get through four, I think he, uh, Tony La Russa has all the relievers he needs absolutely get through. I think if Rodon gets through three, there's going to be some choices we made on who gets two. Um, you know, whether it's uh, how much you, you know, not, you know, you, I don't know how Craig Kimbrell, I hope he doesn't pitch, but you know, how many batters you give to Kimbrell, what situation, uh, whether it's another one out thing to just spare a guy, uh, like maybe like Crochet gets a lefty out and, and then he's done by the time they're already comes up and Kimbrell can pitch. Yeah, you, know, you don't quite know, but. I think if you can get through four, then it's crochet against lefties, bummer against lefties. Tapera can pitch again. And then, you know, Hendricks can pitch two. He can maybe even pitch three if you want, but I think at least definitely two. We did get this question from Omar. Omar wrote to us, any chance Lance Lynn pitches on three days rest? Possible. Um, Cause I think, you know, if it gets to a game five, Giolito would be the game five starter and hope for better. But uh, Lynn, you know, just, I think maybe for an inning, if you wanted to pitch him an inning, it'd be better. I think I'd feel better about him than Lopez for if he needed to, you know, if Rodon, you know, if Rodon's like a worst case situation where he goes one or two and you need an inning, like maybe Lynn for an inning would be okay. Um, Cause at that point it's all hands on deck. Try not to ask too much from him, but, uh, and it's also not, you know, it's at home versus, uh, you know, in Houston. So there is reason to think beyond just, you know, fingers crossed that it would be better. Um, but if, you know, if Rodon can go four, I don't think Lynn will be necessary. Yeah. Rodon's got to live in the strike zone. We're going to talk more about this during our Twitter pregame show at 1130 AM central time, which you could follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. We'll host that. We'll talk more about the importance of White Sox pitchers clearly living in the strike zone as we saw today in game three in their win from the fifth to the ninth inning on how Houston is mortal if you challenge them, if you walk them, and they'll take those walks, and then they hit a double, then things get messy in a real hurry. But if you challenge them, especially on the road, uh, mm -hmm. when whistles and bane in the trash cans don't work as well, uh, 
They're not invincible. And hopefully that attitude goes into game four. And as uh, Tony La Russa said after game two, he said a lot of things in that press conference that were not good. But I think the one thing that he said at the end of the press conference from his experience back in 2004, watching Terry Francona speak to the media down 3-0 to the New York Yankees in the American League Championship Series, Terry Francona said, you just need to win one. Mm-hmm. And the White Sox won their one game tomorrow. They just got to win that game. And it was a really cool feeling to leave the stadium and, you know, give credit to the Milwaukee Bucks fans for starting this trend. But there's a lot of White Sox fans chanting Sox in five. And if they win tomorrow, game four, uh, which I guess technically is today as we're streaming live uh, after midnight on Monday. But if they can win game four, you're going to give yourself an opportunity to come from behind in this series and go back to Houston and try to win this in five. But tonight was a fantastic night, and it was a whirlwind of emotions, one of the craziest games I've ever been to. If you follow us on Instagram, we're at Sox Machine. There's going to be more videos and photos of the stadium experience. So you can kind of, if you didn't get a chance to go, you can kind of live through that experience because the introductions were really cool and you know, just the reactions of, of players being introduced and other big plays in the stadium. So the, those will be popping up on our Instagram. Uh, so you can live the those moments uh, that you didn't get an opportunity if you weren't at the stadium. But I hope to see folks at the stadium tomorrow. I'll be there again. Uh, again, first pitch is at 2.30. Jim and I will have Sox Machine Live after the game Monday night. And, yeah, one, uh, one thing I'll add, though, is, is, you know, from the broadcast is that I saw a lot of people remarking on just how awesome the stadium looked. You know, between the blackout, but just between the fans, you know, White Sox postseason appearances are so rare that White Sox fans really want to be there. Like just, they, you know, it seems like, you know, they're not used to it. They know how precious these games are and they don't want to be the reason why the Sox lost. And it's kind of silly to say, but it's also just, you know, what are you going to do? Like you're paying that money, you're going, you're putting your hopes on. Like you want to scream your head off. You want to do mm-hmm. that. You just, you want to be a factor you want to feel like you're being a factor and that seems to come through it comes through the tv it seems to come through like neutral parties like you know national reporters uh you know national observers you know commentators uh what have you that have no uh stake in the game have no stake in the fan base just say that white Sox fans just sound different and you know we talked about you know when oakland's making all those appearances and oakland's crowd sounded rowdy like that's you know i feel like white Sox fans could develop the same reputation in their own way with their own signatures, just that they could get there more often. So you hope that they can, uh, you know, make it two for two with this homestand, just to reward the fans for showing, just to keep the excitement going. Cause even, you know, whatever happens if they don't advance, if they, if they can at least provide two crowd pleasers, fans saying like, that was the greatest game I've ever been to, whether they've been to one or the other, just feeling like this is like, I want to come back to this next year. Just that's what they need to do this year. That's what they need to do with this whole postseason. The American League is good this year. The teams that are left are all good. So just, you know, it's tough. Whoever emerges with the AL pennant will deserve it. But just you want to give White Sox fans the reason, like, this was a good team. We're going to be doing this again next year. And and more people are going to want to be there next year. And when you see it come through the TV like that, it's really, it's really impressive. It's really awesome. And, you know, I, I was already 
you know, feeling like I was living vicariously through you and everybody else and just going to, you know, emphasize that more, you know, if, if the more games they can win and do this. And that's a great way to end this episode. Thank you to everyone that was watching the live stream as we got home and got our lives organized. It's currently 1 a.m. Central Time uh, Monday, so it's a great time to wrap up because we got an early morning to get ready for Game 4. But if you didn't get a chance to watch the live stream, you could watch episodes of Sox Machine live on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. If you don't get an opportunity to watch or if you just want to listen, we always upload the audio recording of Sox Machine live into our podcast feed, which you can subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. I am at Sox Machine underscore Josh, as we'll have the Twitter space pregame show starting at 1130 a.m. Central Time on Monday getting ready for game four. If you just discovered Sox Machine or if you've been a lurker or reading our content or listening to our content for a while and you're not supporting us on Patreon, uh, think about it as we have different, different, I'm sorry, we have several tiers of support starting at $2 a month. Uh, we also have annual plans that save you 9% and our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website and they get the first opportunity to purchase our socks machine swag like our ball caps and our pint glasses. So if you enjoy our work and you want more, go to patreon.com slash socks machine and sign up today. Socks Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I am Josh Nelson. Thanks for watching and listening. <laughs>